wonder if you pray with me. Father God, thank you for this opportunity for us to explore this profound and wonderful concept of your kingdom. The teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is so rich and so profound. Thank you for delivering to us in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Gospels such tremendous wisdom about this upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first and we will enjoy the celebration of our wonderful king who values such outrageous values. Thank you that the children are welcome. Thank you that the poor and the lame and the blind and the deaf will all be transformed and will express their great joy over discovering the king and being set free by the values of this amazing kingdom. Thank you for the ways in which the concept of your kingdom stretches us and confuses us and forces us to rethink the assumptions that we have had all along about what you value, about who you communicate to, about the way that you work in this world. Thank you for the surprises of your kingdom. Thank you for the great grace of your kingdom that nobody who thinks they deserve heaven gets in, but everybody who gets in never deserved it in the first place. Thank you for the wonders of grace. Thank you for a king who would come so humbly, who would have to make his case to a temporary ruler like Pilate that there really is a kingdom that he rules, and he really is a king. This humble, sacrificing leader is the one we follow. And Lord, thank you for sending Jesus into our world. Help us to understand our role as citizens of his kingdom. This morning we continue to lift up those who are hurting in a variety of ways in our congregation. We pray for Bill and Mary Ann Cole, having just laid Bill's mother to rest yesterday. We pray for Frank Stack, who lost his brother this week, and the sadness over that. Lord, there are other struggles that you know exist in our midst. There are those who are struggling to find work when everything is disrupted. There are those who are having a hard time putting food on the table. There are other of us, of us who find ourselves incredibly blessed and surprised by all that in the midst of the stress of this time. We pray again for our witness to the world, and as we go through these uh, messages and thoughts that stretch our understanding of your profound kingdom, Give us the ability to think missionally as citizens of your upside-down kingdom in the way that we spread your grace to the world around us, in the way that we show love and kindness and compassion, as well as the way that we model truth. Thank you for each person who's here in the room and for those who are listening, wherever they are this morning. We pray that we will each be led into your blessings and into your profound life-changing, chain-breaking grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
A friend of mine tipped me off this week in regard to a number of mergers that should be occurring over the next few months due to the economic turmoil created by this COVID period. For instance, Hale Business Systems, Mary Kay Cosmetics, Fuller Brush and WR Grace Company will merge to form one large multi-platformed company that will be henceforth known as Hail Mary, Hail Mary Fuller Grace. <laughs> Polygram Records, Warner Brothers and Zesta Crackers will join forces and become Poly Warner Cracker. <laughs> you have to think about that one. 3M is going to merge with Goodyear and they will become mm-mm good. Zippo Manufacturing, Audi Motors, DeFusco, and Dakota Mining will also merge. Their new name will be Zip Audi Doodah. <laughs> I like this one. FedEx is expected to join its competitor, UPS. They will soon become fed up. <laughs> Fairchild Electronics and Honeywell Computers will merge and will henceforth be known as Farewell Honeychild. An unusual merger here, Grey Poupon Food Spread, you know what that is, right? And Docker Pants are expected to become Poupon Pants. <laughs> and one more, Knott's Berry Farm and the National Organization of Women will from now on be known as Not Now. Okay, clearly someone had way too much time on their hands this week. But there's a great connection point in regard to these fictional mergers for us today. Even though humorous, all of these fictional situations build on the concept of alignment. When we're in alignment with Jesus and his kingdom, we make our decisions based on kingdom priorities. This morning we're going to talk about part three of our Kingdom Unity series, and the concept is kingdom priorities. The idea that I want to introduce to you is simple and yet profound at the same time. Those who put Christ's kingdom first end up seeing people and opportunities through Jesus' eyes. Our current series, if you're new to all of this, is called Kingdom Unity. After laying the foundation for us to understand the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, over the past two Sundays, I call what we've done in the last two weeks sort of Kingdom 101 or Kingdom Theology 101. Whether you know it or not, you have been doing theology just by participating with me these last two Sundays. Today's scripture text is much simpler, but the way we're going to stretch it and follow it is very deep at the same time. We are going to focus on the meaning of one key central verse, Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. I want to frame our approach to this around two questions. The first one is, what does it mean to seek his kingdom first? And then the second question that we will tackle is, how do we seek his kingdom first today with all the complexities of the world that we live in, with all of the craziness that goes on around us. Let me stop here for a moment to say good morning to all of you. Uh, whatever your comfort zone is regarding church services at this time, I am so glad that you are making it a priority to worship with us at North River. We are seeing a growing number of people who are attending here at North River in person, and so I'm delighted to see all of you who are in the worship center with me today. As Todd mentioned a few moments ago, we are feeling our way forward. We're going to open up for an 11 a.m. service 
as well as this in-person nine o'clock service that we have now, beginning Palm Sunday. And as COVID numbers go down and the vaccination numbers go up, we're seeing more people who are comfortable worshiping with us here in person. From your posts and likes and shares, we also know that there are hundreds of people who are watching our services via church online or through our website or Facebook Live or on Vimeo throughout the week. Welcome to all of you. Wherever you are this morning, I am so glad that you're choosing to be a part of this growing body of North River Church here in Pembroke, around the South Shore, and in several different states. So I want to take a moment just to say hello to Tim in Columbus, Bob in Chicago, Fred and Amy in San Diego, Stuart and Elaine in Washington State, Janet in New Hampshire, to Leslie and Abuela in Florida, to Chris in New York, and to the growing North River South gang in North Carolina. You all sign in every week, and I'm delighted to see your names as you're showing up and being a part of all of this. For the next few minutes, let's focus on Jesus, his kingdom, and kingdom priorities. What are kingdom priorities? Jesus makes this profound statement in this one verse, Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, And all these things, in other words, everything else that we are tempted to worry about will be added to you as well. What does it mean to seek Jesus and his kingdom first? Now, in order to understand that, we have to start by defining and understanding the word seek. A variety of online dictionaries define the verb seek like this, to go in search or in quest of, to look for, to try to find or discover something by searching or questioning to try to obtain, to try to locate, discover, or again, to search for. From these definitions, you get the sense that seeking is not passive. So seeking after Jesus and his kingdom demands intentionality. Seeking after Jesus and his kingdom puts us on a quest or a search to discover. We need to search, to ask questions, to dig, to discover. And what does it mean for us to seek his kingdom in a kingdom where the first will become last and the last will become first because of the missional heart of the king? Next, we find that when you seek, you will find. Jeremiah, the prophet, more than 600 years, perhaps uh, 650 years before the time of Christ, wrote these thoughts in Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. These verses are challenging us to seek the Lord. And we find that this challenge to seek the Lord is consistent with how God has operated in the past. God tells us that he is in the business of being found. He is not hiding somewhere with the idea of keeping himself from people. He wants to be found. The context of this verse and this promise came near the end of Israel's divided kingdom era. Think of it this way, the northern kingdom and its capital Samaria had fallen in 722 BC. All that was left was the smaller kingdom of Judah. And now God was announcing that he would no longer protect Judah or its capital Jerusalem and they would soon fall to Babylon. 
The reason was spiritual compromise. They had worshipped idols in place of God, and soon the remnant of God's people would live in captivity in the kingdom of Babylon. So this promise was originally intended for God's people dwelling in captivity. God was saying, when you turn back to me, even though you are far away living in another land, I will be found by you. Yet this also teaches us something about the long-term nature and character of our God. God is in the business of being found today if you really want to know him. God values that searching, seeking process, especially from people who are far from God or those who we would see as least likely to seek after God. No matter how far you may be from God, if you seriously seek him, you will find him. That's one of our operating principles here at North River and has been for more than 30 years. And so there's great hope for all of us, that no matter how bad things get for you as an individual or for us as a nation, if we seek him, he will be found. And you will know him. Jesus longs for people who ask, who seek, and knock. So he said in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, those who seek find, and to those who knock, the door will be opened. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus validates that process of seeking. He even intensifies it. Asking, seeking, and then knocking requires resilience. In the verses that follow, Jesus reminds us that God the Father knows how to give good gifts, but he always answers within his own timing. Hence the requirement to ask and seek and knock and to keep on asking and seeking and knocking because the timing that we desire isn't always the timing that God has in mind. And in this context, Jesus is calling for kingdom seekers who don't give up on the quest. And he tells us to seek his kingdom first. Notice the verse starts off by saying, not just to seek his kingdom, but to seek first his kingdom. To seek his kingdom first means making his kingdom our dominant priority. When we do this, Christ's mission becomes our mission. Whatever our gifts and our calling, his top priorities become our priorities as well. My wife and I both graduated from Wheaton College in Illinois. Since 1860, Wheaton has been one of the top Christian colleges in our country. The first thing that anyone sees and experiences is when they walk on the campus of Wheaton College is this stone wall with the school's motto carved into it, for Christ and his kingdom. That motto was reinforced by the entire experience of going to school there, and it impacts many, many of its graduates for their life, the rest of their lives. Wherever we go, Jesus is our king. Whatever career we choose, Jesus comes first. Whatever business we are in or success we achieve, his kingdom comes first. And folks, that's true for us as well here at North River. We are about the kingdom of God expressed through Jesus the king who came humbly to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is all around us. We live in a new age because Jesus The humble servant king has come to stake his claim for his father's kingdom as the heir who will one day reign with all clarity. Seeking his kingdom first also implies that we are to do what is right at all times as best as we know how. 
Notice that little yet all-important phrase, and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That means that we operate according to his values and his priorities. God's promise to bless that comes at the end of the verse anticipates people who try to do things the right way, his way. We can't try to bully our way to the goal, ignoring what is right, and expect him to bless us along the way. I like the way the New Living Translation interprets this particular verse. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So make his kingdom your priority, and he will provide. So the whole verse says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Here is the promise. If you and I seek Christ and put his kingdom first, he will provide. This is not a promise to give you or me everything that we want or everything we desire, but he gives us what we need. So Jesus surrounds this verse with descriptions of how God cares for the flowers and the fields. They don't worry, and yet they are clothed with beauty and splendor. In the same way, when we serve Christ's kingdom first, he gives us what we need, and often so much more. When I think of this promise, I think back to 1989 when we started North River. We started with absolutely no financial backing, just 10 of us in a small group who could depend on what we threw into a hat every week. A demographic study of the South Shore led the 10 of us to choose Pembroke as the place to start this little church. I was 30 years old with about five years of church leadership experience, but we had never planted a church. So there was constant risk that we were aware of for years that what we started might fail and that the way that I was leading might fail because none of us had ever done this before. And yet, deep down, there was this powerful sense that I had that God was telling me this was not just my dream, this was his dream. Now, looking back for 31, almost 32 years, we have watched God provide over and over again in amazing ways. The story of how the Tedeschi family donated this land that our church campus is on, is, that alone is absolutely incredible. Were there bumps in the road? Yes. Struggles at time? Absolutely. Mistakes made? You bet, many of them, mostly by me. But the more we put his kingdom first, God has blessed us so richly. I was thinking as I drove here this morning, there's an old hymn that we used to sing in the Baptist church that I grew up in. I love your kingdom, Lord, it says. It was written by Timothy Dwight in 1801, and it's thought that this is the oldest American written hymn that made it into the hymnals that were sung for a couple of hundred years around this country. What a profound statement. I love your kingdom, Lord. And yet it's a dangerous statement to say that because the kingdom of God is so profound, it is so different from the way most of the values of this world seem to work. Again, we're the first come last and the last come first. And we come to understand that this is all driven by the joy and desire of the king who longs for all kinds of people, even the most unlikely, to wind up in the celebration and joy of the father at the end. Okay, here's the second question. 
How do we seek his kingdom first today with all the complexity and confusion that we live in? I have three suggestions about that. First, we must reclaim unity, not uniformity. If you've gone through North River's 101 class, we call it our belong class, you have read this statement. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. We're not alone in using this. Many other churches use that phrase. It's part of the preamble that walks into our statement of faith. For a long time, I wondered who wrote this, and so I started to dig to figure out where does that quote come from. Some attributed it to John Wesley, and yet the scholars have looked through the writings of John Wesley, and it never shows up there. Some attributed to Augustine, and yet they read through Augustine's writings and letters and books, and it never shows up there as well. It was written, actually, by an obscure Christian leader around 1627 to 1628 named Rupertus Meldenius. How many of you ever heard his name? I, I'm sure that nobody here has. I never had until this week. But he wrote this statement during the awful 30 years' war that tore apart Europe over church doctrine and the way that it was fought for by the different denominational movements from Catholic to Anglican to all the split-offs that happened in the German and the English Reformations. He wrote what was known as the Tract of Meldenius. Meldenius called church and civic leaders to pursue truth in humility and love, not with power and force. He argued that with uh, too much controversy about the truth, we are in danger of losing truth itself. And so his pamphlet was reprinted and translated into other languages and adopted by other groups over time and most of the time without including his name. And so his name became mostly forgotten. But think of this, when he was sick of the bitter divisions of his time, he wrote something powerful that serves us still. I was drawn to this statement because of the divisiveness of the time that we live in, these ancient words written in the midst of an even more bitterly divisive time may serve us well to think about. Here's what this statement can mean for a church. On core central issues of faith that come from the heart of Jesus, we want to have unity. In secondary, debatable matters, we must practice liberty, allowing respectful diversity to exist. This is what a generous, multicultural society is actually built on, and the church is designed to lead the way in this regard. And in all things, we want to have charity, be gracious in the way that we talk about what we believe and toward others who may believe something different. This means valuing each other highly as members of the kingdom of Christ. The reason this statement was so sticky over time was that it helped people put the kingdom and its values first. When we value each other in Christ, we can handle secondary points of view where we differ. When we are clear about our mission as a church, we can handle secondary differences without them dividing us because we're clear on the main things that unite us. So that first challenge that we, we find is to reclaim unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is when we demand that everyone believes everything in exactly the same way. Unity is where we're united around the core central principles that allow us to continue to discover and to play out how we understand the less clear secondary areas of theology. 
Here's the second way that we seek his kingdom first today. Restore respectful dissent. We have an opportunity to model unity, liberty, and charity every time we get together as a church, every time we work together in subcommittees and task forces and mission groups. The world watches as we learn to restore respectful dissent because we are Christians. The challenge is that our political divide is wide and our respect of diverse opinions right now in this country is low. We have become accustomed to political leaders, opinion leaders, and oftentimes Christians who speak about politics as they demonize opponents and dramatize political decisions or events to the point that we are told that the sky is falling on the heels of nearly every next decision. And over the course of time, we have allowed the histrionics of Fox News, CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe, and a whole bunch of Christian fundraising letters to work each side of a variety of issues and turn them into no-holds-barred, demonize the enemy, win-at-all-cost controversies. And this has become normal for us today. And we far too often carry that same spirit into the church rather than the church influencing the culture so often, too often, the culture influences the church. How do we restore respectful dissent? Key word being respectful. And then a third suggestion, how do we seek his kingdom first today? By recapturing the voice of Jesus in the midst of all the other calls for our attention. How do we love our enemies as a kingdom priority? How do we learn to see through his eyes? Can we care for the least of these in the midst of this constant battle over rights that we find ourselves in, rather than winning at all costs and destroying the opponent? We as Christians should be asking how we preserve what we can while making sure that the needs of what Jesus called the least of these are met at the same time. That is part of our calling. When do we go back and do more than wear a bracelet that asks, what would Jesus do? When do we follow in that direction? Here's an example. In the first century Israel, tax collectors were considered to be corrupt and they were hated because of it. And then we read in the Gospels in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus went directly one day to a man named Zacchaeus who was hanging on a tree branch trying to get closer to Jesus because he was short, the crowd was big, and he wanted to see Jesus and hear his words. And Jesus rocks right up to this corrupt, despised tax collector and he says, I'm coming to your house for lunch. Actually, the, the actual text says more like this, I must stay at your house today. And when Jesus went and ate a meal with Zacchaeus and probably some of his tax collector friends, the crowd outside, which were the church crowd of the time, grumbled about Jesus. How can he do this? How can he eat with sinners like this? Doesn't he know who this person is? Won't he be corrupted in the process, they were thinking. I was thinking of that scenario when we sang one of the songs that led off our service this morning and there was this one line that said, he who dined with sinners and saints. Did you catch that? It's talking about people like Zacchaeus, 
People like you and me, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and Zacchaeus walks out of that luncheon and says, if I have cheated anyone, I will pay four times what I have taken. And Jesus then announces to the crowd, today salvation has come to this house. Because he's seen the transformation of an unlikely heart in the midst of all of that. They thought tax collectors were not to be valued by God and were beyond the reach of his grace. As I was thinking about that, I started asking this week, who are the tax collectors that Jesus is sending to us today? Just think of how this would confound people in our day, those who look for a fight over every issue, those who want to destroy the enemy. If we began to think missionally in the way that Jesus did, about the most unlikely groups of people, at least as far as we typically think of church. Here's a hot test case. I was asked recently by uh, one of our overseers if I would comment sometime about some of the recent political concerns, and I usually stay far away from this, but I'm going to as a test case right now about one. There's an equality bill working its way through Congress right now. Media folks are demanding that this has to get passed immediately. Christian ministries fear that Christian business owners and churches will lose rights because of it. At the center of this bill are protections for transgender people, known as trans people. Hear me out on this for a moment. There are some of the things of, about this bill that I am very, very concerned about. Over the, re over the weekend, I read the bill. It's called H.R. 5. On its face, this bill attempts to protect trans people from discrimination from basic things like, can they get a job? Can they find housing? Without having the redlining that quietly went on that kept black people from buying homes in our communities for many decades. But the main concern that I have is that this bill directly targets and tries to nullify the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That act was passed by a 97 to three Senate vote in 1993 during the Bill Clinton era. The sponsor of that act was a congressman from New York known as Chuck Schumer, and it was voted for by a senator known as Joe Biden. All of those things have become flipped today, where those who are presenting the bill that would undermine the same bill that was passed with such a wide majority in 93 would begin to strip away, allegedly, the rights of Christians. Now, I want to throw our question into this. What would Jesus, who usually confounds everyone, do in a situation like this? Is there a missional step to be taken? When you stop and listen and talk to trans people, the issue for them about their lives isn't sex. It's about feeling that they do not have cohesion between their bodies and the way they perceive themselves. And one of the great challenges in life is, where can they go to the bathroom and feel safe? Because they experience this incongruity, is the technical term that the psych psychologists use, an incongruity between body and self-perception. I recently read a story of a trans woman who is seeking to know Jesus, and so she's coming around Christians, and she's checking out churches, she wrote that she scopes out the bathroom situation when she walks into a church for the first time. 
If there's not a safe, gender neutral, or family bathroom, she refuses to drink even a sip of water because of the most fearful thing for her is to have to navigate the which bathroom do I use situation. So again, what would Jesus do? Is there a way to act as cultural missionaries or are we on our pathway to only act as cultural warriors and define our enemies? What if churches like North River could stand for the principles they believe in and build a third bathroom that's a single stall generic bathroom? It would cost a church like us several thousand dollars to do that. It would force us to carve out space that's currently used for something else, but it would send a signal to trans people that the lost and confused people of the world are welcome here instead of playing the culture war game. And we would define ourselves as cultural missionaries who value the spiritual seeking process of others as they are asking, seeking, and knocking to find Jesus. It would make a statement that there are churches like ours that would rather give up space and spend our money sacrificially than see them left out of the kingdom. And it would apply, apply a, lever, a level of compassion to what often simply becomes a fight over rights. I'm not making a formal proposal. I'm thinking missionally. I'm trying to stir the pot, so to speak, for us to figure out how do we just not fall into the traditional categories that pits one group against the other, but allows us to stand for the values that we think are near and dear while at the same time reaching out to those who are most often left out or look like the tax collectors of our day, at least in conventional thinking. Maybe you'll have a better idea of how to go about that. That's why I'm not putting forward a proposal. I'm just trying to stir our thinking. And if you have a better idea for how we think missionally in seemingly impossible situations, I would love to hear your idea. Here's what I'm trying to get across this morning. Those who put Christ's kingdom first end up seeing people and opportunities through Jesus' eyes. And when we see people and opportunity through Jesus' eyes, we often upset other people who are opposed to those ideas because they are revolutionary ideas that come from Jesus. We're going to celebrate communion in a moment. Before they do that, I'd like you to join me in a prayer that is thinking through this specific challenge and this message. Would you pray along with me? Lord, help us to put you and your kingdom first in all we do. Help us to see people and opportunities through your eyes. For when we do, your kingdom plans break through. In Jesus' name, amen. When you came in this morning, hopefully you picked up one of these small communion kits. Let me read to you from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
What is communion and why do we do it? First, communion is a simple act. Here Paul writes that Jesus took bread. He doesn't tell us what kind of bread. He doesn't say that it has to be uh, matzah bread or, or something else. The longer we live, the more we experience a variety of different situations. And there are people in every culture that have some form of bread, whether it's pita bread or Italian bread or Syrian bread or rye bread or the little wafer that you find here this morning. It's a simple act with profound meaning that reconnects us with that moment when Jesus broke bread with his disciples. So peel off that top plastic layer carefully and take that piece of wafer when we eat this together, this reminds us of Jesus' broken body for us, a simple act with profound meaning. Let's eat. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into our world, our broken, messy, and confused world, with so many people who feel lost and left out. Use those of us who know Jesus and who follow him and who dare to try to apply his unconventional wisdom to our world. Give us the joy of seeing all kinds of people experience the transforming, life-changing grace of Jesus. Not only is it a simple act with profound meaning, but we find that when we partake in communion, we celebrate our union with Christ. And so we take these elements into us. There's another layer here that opens up the cup. When we drink this cup, it reminds us that Jesus shed his blood for us in order to pay for our sins and that there was no other way for us to be united with God except through him. And so we celebrate our union with Christ and we celebrate our unity with each other. Let's drink in gratefulness to Jesus. Father God, thank you for your profoundly rich, mind-bending, life-changing grace given to those who don't deserve it, who cannot possibly earn it, but who take hold of it when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would use us as a group of people to convey to all kinds of unlikely groups of people just how much God loves them and just how transformational his power really is. Expand our thinking as we try to live out the values of this amazing kingdom of God where the first will be last and the last will be first and all those who enter in will enjoy the laughter and love of the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. I trust that you'll come back and finish out this series on the profound kingdom of God that we are working through together. God bless you.